Good morning and welcome once again to another episode of Logistics with Purpose. I'm your host, Enrique Alvarez, and I'm super thrilled today because we have an amazing guest and it's going to be very, very interesting. So before we jump into that, Christy, good morning. How are you doing today? Good morning. I am doing well. I'm excited to be here, excited for this conversation. Um, our guest today is one that has been on my wish list since I started co-hosting. Um, so I'm really glad that we finally get to talk to him and he's made time in his schedule because he's a really busy guy and on the other side of the world. So I know this is going to be a fantastic conversation for people. I think so too. And it's just amazing, right? Because we're so connected right now. We as people are very connected, uh, more connected than ever, but yet at the same time, we're a very divided, we're living in a very divided world, right? Which is basically something that I quoted from uh, one of the movies uh, from this organization. But uh, but uh, um, any good news, uh, Christy, one good thing that has been happening to you this week that you can share with our audience? Oh, on the spot. Um, one good news. Well, I mean, for us internally, I was able to send around um, an email a few days ago about just all the things that we've been doing to support our communities and worldwide communities and local communities. And that was really fun. And to be able to share with our team all the good things that they've been doing and why the work they do every day matters. And so um, got some really good response to that. And those are always really exciting and fun uh, emails to send around. And then I was able to go represent us at a 5k this past weekend with another teammate. So, uh, for a, a local nonprofit, so some good stuff happening for sure. Definitely. Definitely. And again, um, let, let's introduce our guest today. It's, uh, an amazing organization. Its main goal is to, uh, eradicate wars, to stop all armed conflicts around the world. So, I mean, how amazing is that? <laughs> right. Just so, a weekend gig. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, uh, <laughs> Yes, ambitious goal. Uh, yeah. and I'm pretty sure they're going to pull it off because they have a, a great team, a great organization, and hopefully we can all rally around their uh, cause to to make this happen. Yeah. So we're thrilled to introduce Jeremy Courtney, who is the CEO and founder of Preemptive Love. Welcome. We're so excited for you to be here. I was telling um, Enrique and everyone else listening from home since I started co-hosting this podcast with Enrique, a few, I guess, uh, since last January, maybe, um, you were one of the guests at the top of my list to have on. So I'm thrilled that we finally get to welcome you today. So thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And Jeremy, yeah. before we start with the questioning, you are in Iraq right now, right? Yeah, that's right. I'm uh, dialing in from home here in Iraq myself. So this is going to be an amazing conversation in more ways than one. And I know we'll get to ask you a little bit more about living there um, soon and definitely want people to hear about, uh, more about the mission of preemptive love as well. But first, let's start off learning a little bit more about you personally. So can you just tell us a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and kind of those early years? Oh, gosh. Um, people don't ask about that too often. So, I mean, probably not. <laughs> this is the question most people have, that those, is... they have the most trouble with. <laughs> And that is what I'm actually most interesting about, yeah. right? Probably. How, how did you end up where you are now? Nothing too extreme or different, I don't think. Uh, grew up in, uh, I was born in California, grew up between Denver and then Texas. My family eventually, you know, really settled in Texas or back in Texas for them, which was where a lot of them grew up. Uh, so Texas has kind of been, uh, I think, what our family considered home. Um, my wife, Jessica, is also a Texan born and raised. I don't really claim Texas that much. Quite honestly, <laughs> I, I prefer to lean into my 
California roots, although I was only there for uh, a short time. But, you know, when I'm in Texas, when I'm speaking in Texas, you know, there's kind of a standard line of I wasn't born in Texas, but I got here as fast as I could. Um, Are you a Cowboys fan is the real question. No, I was a huge Cowboys fan in the 90s. Well, then you are from Texas. When when the Cowboys were awesome and I was a high schooler, you know, and that was like, you know, one of the most important things you could do with your life was pay attention to sports. Um, I was a huge Cowboys fan, but you know, I've since moved on and uh, don't pay quite as much attention anymore. Anyway, uh, my, I, I come from a, a long line of preachers as it were. So my grandfather is a, uh, is a Baptist minister and my father after him followed in his footsteps. And I was, you know, in many ways probably set to be the, the third generation following in that line and uh, I, I kind of took a veer in a different direction, pursued marketing and, and business uh, initially in college. And um, yeah, that kind of that, that gets us through college right there. And I'll take a I'll take a pause there. But like I said, nothing too extraordinary. Well, living in a family, uh, your grandfather, a preacher, your dad, a preacher. Is there something in particular that you remember about them that that kind of stays with you until this day is there something in their kind of upbringing and the example that they set for you that changed you the way you view things and life in general certainly i mean they they had a, a tremendous tremendous impact on who i was and who i became um like well so i mean i've inherited a lot from them uh what started out i think is a is a very um a very clear vision of right and wrong in the world was definitely something that I launched into adulthood with that I, I certainly inherited from uh, countless Sunday sermons and and dining room table sermons on top of that. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, I think one of the things that that has also been true on the other side of growing up in a family of of ministers, uh, particularly the the fire and brimstone style ministers uh, that that many of us maybe have seen characterized in, in other places. I think I, that, that simple black and white vision of right and wrong in the world has now come to be, I think, challenged for me and colored in, in so many different ways. I, I, I launched out in the world an extremely, and, and this is ultimately on me, an extremely self-righteous cocksure person who was extremely clear on what was right, what was wrong, who was in, who was out. And, you know, I think my adulthood has largely been a story of differentiating myself from a lot of that and then learning to reintegrate uh, a lot of what I grew up with, only learning to now live it kind of on a higher, a higher plane or, or in a, a different, more mature way. Um, so you've caught us up a little bit through college. So talk about kind of the years in your career leading up to preemptive love before we get, we get to what you're doing right now, which is really incredible and I'm excited for people to hear more about. Yeah. I, I think the, the growing up in a family of ministers, uh, part of my story really does set the stage for everything that would come next because right as I was leaving uh, university, we got married and the very, uh, couple months months later was September 11th. And mm -hmm. in that in that American environment in 2001, where Muslim terrorists had attacked the United States, being embedded in that particular kind of uh, Southern Christian environment made me uh, very susceptible to a kind of Christian nationalist 
rhetoric. And I was, I, I wouldn't have said this at the time, but I now believe, I now look at my life and make meaning out of it all by saying it like this. I was recruited into the war on terror as a Christian missionary. Um, I wouldn't have said it that way at the time. At, at the time, I would have I would have seen myself as standing in stark contrast, probably to maybe my soldier friends who were recruited more obviously into the war on terror. But what I now believe is that they were armed and sent out with guns, and we were armed and sent out with Bibles. And on the other side of the ocean, we had the same mission, which was essentially to eliminate Muslims from the world and to make them into something that looked a lot more like what we were, what we understood ourselves to be Christian, American, democratic, whatever kind of flavor of that each one of us uh, emphasized more. I think we had a very similar mission. I, I think we wanted to get rid of Muslims. And um, it took me a, a while, it took me a couple of years living among Muslims, trying to make them see the world my way, trying to get them to become Christians or make them Christians like me, that I ultimately had a, a huge falling out with that way of being in the world, that way of living in the world. And um, I, had a, I had a profound life change, a profound change of mind, change of worldview. And I just, I, I woke up in a, in a, a kind of epiphany, honestly, a spiritual awakening that just hit me in a moment. And I, I was the completely transformed person, left all that behind, moved into Iraq uh, to turn over a new leaf, uh, it, move into a, a war environment, a humanitarian environment and try something new, try to live differently among Muslims in a way that was more service oriented and and brotherly and neighborly and and less about power and um, trying to make people be like me. Jeremy, was there something in particular, like any uh, maybe an example or something you can remember that kind of like bridges the gap between uh, you getting married, graduating from marketing and business to hey, I'm gonna go live in Iraq. I think I, there's a lot of pieces in between that I believe you kind of described already from like a mental and spiritual awakening. But uh, but it, was there something in particular or some people that kind of help you go through that or some fundamental questions that you had about the way you were living back in the day in uh, Texas or in the United States in general? Yeah, there's a lot. Um, I mean, it's, it's impossible really to talk about the humanitarian work that we've ended up doing and the people that we've ended up being and the, the peacemaking community that we've ended up forging and being a part of, I, I can't talk about that stage of our life where we are now without passing through those, those war on terror and kind of missionary waters. They were, they were in many ways, the, the, the forging ground for who we were and who we would become that kind of missionary work, um, even though it was full of bigotry, even though I was full of bigotry, I was full of uh, suspicion, perhaps even contempt. Yeah, I think contempt for my Muslim friends and neighbors. And, and yet I would still describe it as the absolute highest form of love that I knew and that I could give at that stage of my life. I I was steeped in a worldview. I was steeped in a religion that called me to love. And the ceiling on that love as I was living it and as I knew it at that time was to help people be like me, to help people see what I saw, to help people embrace the religion and the beliefs as I did. And so in that way, 
it was it was love and it was the highest form of love that i could possibly be or give or live the the thing that i find beautiful and remarkable now as i look back on it is that in some ways we were able like a like a chick cracking out of its eggshell we were able to kind of emerge out of that embedded world and and emerge into a new world and be born again into something that was bigger something that, that on which the ceiling of that next stage of life was higher and i that's the most beautiful way to live and the most beautiful way to understand living i believe is as a constant being reborn a constant emerging into a life where the ceiling on love just gets higher and higher and higher and so i i don't look back at those years and all those who nurtured me and mentored me and brought me along i don't look at back at them now with contempt i think those were the highest stages of love that a, a young person such as me could live at that time given given how i grew up and who i was and i hope now i'm i'm living the most full life of love that i can for who i am now but i also expect that when i look back on this stage of my life 10 20 40 years from now i will also have emerged from this time where i am and who i am now into something with a a higher capacity for love than i've even known yet well that's very very powerful sentiment and i completely agree with what you're saying and i think you're right you're just evolving growing becoming more aware of the world around you and just trying to be a better person that was back in 2011 when did you uh move to uh, iraq yeah so that was 2001 to 2000 well 2001 to 2006 i would kind of describe as our are like uh those war on terror years. We moved in, I started going to Iraq, coming here to Iraq in 2006, and we fully Six. moved our family here in 2007, the very first week of 2007. Those years were the height of civil war in Iraq, the height of sectarian conflict. Um it was from a from a national perspective it was the scariest and the worst time to move in to the country. We didn't move into the scariest place in the country uh by a long shot but um you know but we had our challenges here to be sure from uh learning how to live without electricity drive by shooting suicide bombings things like that all within our first uh you know couple months um but eventually you know you get the lay of the land you you learn how to adapt and you you just it becomes part of your your normal life and within just the first couple of months of living here uh the the short story is i was working in a hotel cafe and met this family whose child needed a life-saving surgery and as i began to explore relationship with this family and their network to see what we could do to provide them with a life-saving surgery for their child uh, a life-saving heart surgery um kids just started coming out of the woodwork they they told other people that there were some americans who were now helping kids like theirs and other people started coming along and people started calling my cell phone blindly and showing up at our house and taxis in the city would divert people from going wow. to the hospital and no let me not take you to the hospital let me if your child has a heart problem let me take you over here to my you know my friend Jer- jeremy so we just started becoming this kind of outpost of last resort for these iraqi families whose children were were languishing with life-threatening birth defects 
the U.S. had bombed hospitals. Al-Qaeda was killing doctors and nurses. Iraq had experienced a huge brain drain from people just trying to get out and leave the war, similar to what we're seeing in Afghanistan right now. And um, we played a, a critical role in that ecosystem of helping save the lives of hundreds and then thousands of kids' lives. And, and then that we were kind of off to the races as as a newly forged community of peacemakers called Preemptive Love. So when did you officially uh, form or incorporate it or uh, the right word for preemptive love? And was it done in the U.S. and then you brought it to Iraq or something you started in Iraq? Tell us more about a little bit of uh, the actual history of now preemptive love and your role as the founder and the CEO. Yeah, we started in Iraq, actually. Um You know, probably more as a as a what you might call an initiative or a, a response to to a very specific child, a very specific family whose daughter needed a life saving heart surgery, and um, I had already been working in the international charity humanitarian space a little bit over those first couple of months, and it was enough to make me disillusioned. Like just those first couple of months in Iraq, working as a humanitarian. Uh, I was disillusioned with funding, with red tape, with bureaucracy, with how slow things were. But I think above all, I was I was disappointed with how lacking the space was in creativity and entrepreneurialism and thinking outside the box. It felt very cookie cutter. And, you know, I wouldn't now knowing what I know, I wouldn't necessarily trust my early read on things because I've seen a lot of people now come through our ranks and and come to snap conclusions about what they think. Right. But whatever it was, I had these snap judgments as a young, you know, upstart, entrepreneurial kind of person living in this environment that we were in. And so we wanted to do things differently. We didn't want to, we didn't want to fund this little girl's heart surgery by, by some of the means that, that we saw other people doing it. So we partnered with business. Instead, we We found a, a business-related solution. We found uh, some exports, namely uh, what we thought was a very cool, unique, fashionable pair of locally handmade shoes. And given the broader cultural environment that was going on in the United States right now, again, this was the height of sectarian conflict. U.S. troops were surging in um, at, at an increased rate, which the American population was growing very, very fed up with that we were surging more and more and more troops into the country where this thing was already such a debacle and things were going off the rails. And uh, we were seeing a lot of Americans die, which was playing out on the news every night. And so people were very, very frustrated with all things Iraq. And it had become an incredibly politically sensitive uh, issue. Muslims were seen in a, a very, very negative light. Arabs were seen, Iraqis in general were seen in an era, a negative light. And we thought that holding up a, a child who needed a life-saving heart surgery, number one, and an Iraqi-made, locally-made product, number two, that you could marvel at in its intricacy and its quality and its style, a style that we thought was appropriate for American cultural environment. It wasn't like kitsch. It wasn't a tchotchke. It was something that like as a pair of shoes, you could wear out on the street and right. completely stand right. out from the crowd while still being, you know, in fashion. And uh, so we called this this initiative or whatever you want to call it, buy shoes, save lives. 
it was it was more of a slogan to get this one project off the ground than anything. And uh, you know, compared to our expectations, it took off. I think it hit at just wow. the right time. It was it was positive news about real people that humanized our enemies, that humanized the people that we were fighting to kill, that humanized the people that were thought to be killing our brothers and sisters and cousins and sons and daughters. And I think it just hit at the right cultural moment. We got press coverage and we got word of mouth coverage and, you know, what was kind of early days of e-commerce on the internet. And um, yeah, one thing led to another. We funded a lot of heart surgeries. We started bringing in doctors and nurses and medical teams from across the world to actually build up Iraqi infrastructure. We pivoted from strictly using the sale of merch and wares to actually partnering with the Iraqi government themselves. So they were paying us out of oil revenue to to build up their own infrastructure. And oil was really high at that time. So we were we were working all over the country, doing millions of dollars in government contracts, building up their infrastructure, training doctors and nurses. And then ISIS really grew on the scene. I mean, they had been around for a while, but ISIS, as we would all come to know them, um, killed the Fallujah mayor when we were headed into Fallujah to do a heart surgery mission. And um, Fallujah basically stayed under ISIS control for for the next couple of years until we would be the very first people to go back into Fallujah again post-ISIS uh, to deliver the very first humanitarian aid in the world in Fallujah after those years of ISIS rule. So in, in those years, we really pivoted all of our work to, to economic development and emergency humanitarian relief for people on the front lines of, of war. Incredible. Um... So it all started with one girl and one surgery and certainly has grown from there. Would you um, just tell, you've alluded to a little bit uh, of these things, but again, just continue to uh, hone in on the need for your mission versus what we traditionally know as humanitarian aid now and kind of how you guys are doing things differently, as well as give us a couple more of those success stories so we can understand some of these really big concepts that you're talking about and what they look like in practice. Yeah, I mean, these are some broad brush statements I'll make, but I, I think they they hold up under quite a bit of scrutiny. I think the the humanitarian industry in general, the sector as a whole, has tended to look at what you might call relief or aid, development, and peacemaking as three stages, successive mm-hmm. stages in the life of a country, especially a country going through conflict. So sure. uh I mean, let's just stick with Iraq. You go to war, you have an insurgency, you end up going door to door and bombing entire cities to put down that insurgency. So now you leave entire cities in in shambles in a lot of ways, buildings destroyed, homes destroyed, infrastructure destroyed, and there's an armed insurgency. So people are being driven out of their homes by the thousands, maybe the millions in the case of Iraq or Syria, and they can't go back home very easily because either they're still fighting or, and the infrastructure itself, home itself may have been no destroyed. So mm-hmm. what, it, what often happens in that, fa- in that phase or that thinking is the sector typically focuses on how can we get people what they need emergently today, food, water, shelter, and similar type things that, that we all want and need to just kind of be minimally comfortable to survive. And no one's really thinking about economic development at that time, because making economic investments 
when bombs are still falling is said to be or thought to be, uh, you know, kind of a risky, a risky investment. Um, investing in people who are transient, people who are on the move, often internally displaced people or refugees, they might get displaced one, two, three, four times in the course of their their journey. So investing in a business is often thought to be a bad investment because maybe they're just going to pack up and move and leave again. The, the thinking is starting to shift a little bit, but we've been, I think, early on and in the front edge of trying to shift and change the narrative on this, that when we invest cash and capital and resources into people who are transient, who are vulnerable, when we help them start businesses, even out of their tent or, or income streams, even on the run, we can actually change the whole dynamic, maybe shorten timelines on how long it takes to rebuild, on how long it takes for people to get back home. It's, it's not just the big players that rebuild cities. Families themselves want to go home and rebuild their own house, rebuild their old store, re- help rebuild their neighbor's house, help re- rebuild their neighbor's store. So if we invest capital and resources into real humans and not just go through government means or big sector mechanisms, we are seeing communities come back to life sooner sooner than you know maybe sector trends have have kind of stipulated or projected otherwise so rather than see these as as successive phases first emergency then rebuilding uh, business and then the third one that really gets kicked down the road is what you might call peace building or peacemaking or reconciliation or truth and reconciliation we try to pull that way to the front as well how you show up on day 1 determines the peace or it determines the, the 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 ongoing of the conflict. When when conflicts are sectarian, when they're religious, when they're tribal, um, when they're ethnic, who shows up to help the vanquished? Uh, it, it determines how that side feels about the very help that they're being provided. So let's say group group A is the vanquished, the defeated, the the brutalized, and group B represents the oppressor and they represent the helper. Well, if you're the helper and the oppressor, that's not necessarily building peace unless you also include some of the vanquished, some of the victimized, some of the oppressed among, and you show we are here together. We are already at peace as group A and group B. We are coming here together as group A and group B to serve you. We are demonstrating by showing up together that we are already at peace. We're not here to lord it over you. We're not here to gloat. We're not here to actually use aid to keep you down. We're here to lift you up and to partner with you together so that we can continue our peace together into the future and kind of reject this meta narrative that your group and our group are fundamentally against one another. How you recruit, how you build your team, how you show up, whether you're really friends and you can really hug and kiss and love each other or whether it's all just a show, that 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 says a lot when you show up at a military checkpoint or when things get tense or when you have to show up to a representative from one group or another. So so we work to bring that that peace and reconciliation dynamic all the way to the front of the line because we believe from that very first bag of aid that you might provide, 
you're telling a story about the future mm-hmm. of conflict. You're telling a story about the future of the community, the future of your people and my people. And so we we really try to understand ourselves and, and live as above all else, not humanitarians, not relief workers, not development professionals, but peacemakers, uh, people who are willing to put our lives on the line, our well-being on the line, our reputations on the line to, to forge understanding, to forge mutually reinforcing good for for all people in all communities where where we live and work. Um, thank you for sharing all that. It makes a lot of sense and it's exciting to see the approach that you guys are taking and uh, really remarkable in so many ways and so countercultural in so many ways. And hopefully we'll we'll you were on the front lines, you were in early and hopefully we'll continue to see uh, more people follow that example, especially now, as we know, everything can, so much can be done, done online. E-commerce has exploded, everything like that, that makes working out of a tent easier <laughs> if need be. Yeah. Um, so hopefully we'll continue to see those trends. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, in Iraq, even over the last couple of years, we've gotten some of the same types of delivery services that you've had in the United States for for years. So we've got your equivalent of Uber and your equivalent of DoorDash. And uh, it it is absolutely changing the game, even for the refugee. A lot of what we're focused on right now is how to help refugees earn money with nothing but a smartphone. And um, we've got some of our own revenue streams, some of our own platforms that we're building out and investing in to help refugees do work on the run um, as as various forms of micro workers so that not as a career, you know, we don't want people to be working as micro workers as a career, but as a stopgap for, right. for revenue needs when your entire village may have been bombed uh, and you're running to the next village over to have, to have the means over the a three or six month period to fill that gap while you figure out what happens next for your family is one of the major innovations that that we're working on as we look to a future where there's going to be 100 million and then 200 million people displaced because of climate and conflict. We know that we have to be thinking about how to provide jobs for, uh, for a scalable population. And really, at the end of the day, the only option for that has to be cloud-based and it has to be mobile. Right. That's very interesting. And of course, something that can really change the uh, change a lot of lives. Uh, right, technology and investing in technology and how you leverage it, all that. I'm going to quote from from the movie that uh, that you you have your movie. Uh, we are all very very connected, right? Technology has helped us to bridge that gap and to actually make this amazing connections. Yet it still feels like we live in a world that's very divided, right? So I was wondering if you could tell us a little more about your experience in Iraq when it comes to like the misconceptions that some of the uh, some of us in the U.S. and in other countries around the world have about uh, not only Iraq, but could be Afghanistan, could be the Middle East, could be Muslims in general, because there's still a lot of division between us uh, for things like religion or sexual preferences or just even political parties at this point. And how, can you tell us a little bit of that and, and set straight some of those misperceptions or misconceptions? You know, I, I'll say this. I, I never feel more hopeless than when I am engaging a problem through this screen on my phone and thinking in abstract, broad terms. So Republicans are this, Democrats are that, Arabs, Muslims, Christians, Americans, Afghans, Taliban, whatever. Uh, 
whenever I'm using those big proper nouns and just thinking about masses of people that stand for, you know, millions of people, I, I tend to feel very hopeless. It doesn't matter what group we're talking about, uh, but it feels like everything is screwed and nothing is ever going to be better. I never yeah. feel more hopeful than when I'm sitting with individuals or small groups of people and listening to them tell the story of why they are the way they are, why they believe the things they believe, how they came to be the person they came to be. There is, in my experience, no one that I can't empathize with or understand when they do it the way you started this podcast. Tell me about what it was like growing up and how you grew into the person that you are today. There, there is no political belief, no religious belief, right. no cultural belief that can't be somewhat empathized with through that lens. How did you get here? Now, that's not the same as, you know, we all grow into adulthood at some point and have responsibility as adults for adult ideas and adult decisions and adult consequences. So, so getting to know how a person came to be the person they are doesn't absolve any of us from making full-blown right. adult choices and having responsibility for that. But but I do think that 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 empathy piece is important even in calling for consequences or calling for responsibility or expecting responsibility and consequences for each other and others. It's the empathy piece, it's the listening piece especially in non-broad brush settings that I think we're we're missing. It's just so easy now to get our news and our conclusions through the filter of those big proper noun capital letter words, Republican, Democrat, American, Iraqi, Arab, white, straight, Christian, Muslim, you know, whatever it is. And I think the, the sooner we get out of those capital letter proper noun categories and know five, 10, 15, 100 people who belong to that category, the better off we're going to be. Um, you've done really an amazing job uh, telling us about Iraq, telling us about um, the personal connections you've had as somebody, one of the leaders that I follow, I think it was his quote was um, proximity changes perception. Um, So very similar to what you're saying as well, getting to know people and understand their story and where they come from versus just looking, you know, at an us them type perspective. So um, thank you for that. And let's, at the time of this recording, it's nearing the end of September. Um, we're over a month into the current crisis in Afghanistan, and you guys pivoted very quickly um, to be able to help people on the ground there. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you guys are learning, how you were able to pivot so quickly, what's going on um, that you guys are actually involved in, and um, just kind of bringing us up to speed with where, where your efforts in Afghanistan came from and what you're, what you're doing right now? Yeah, in a lot of ways, I would say Afghanistan represents for us getting back to our roots. Uh, in a lot of ways, we have grown tremendously over the last uh, five years in particular, uh, even to the point of unwieldy growth. Um, we, are, we are now paying the, the taxes, on, as it were, on, <laughs> on the purchase of getting bigger over the last couple of years. And, and that that burden, that tax burden, so to speak, has been 
greater than I think we knew it was going to be than we expected it to be. Getting bigger has been complicated and it has come with uh, logistical HR, cultural, interpersonal challenges that that are that are really challenging, really difficult to deal with. And we're still working through some of that. Afghanistan, and so in that getting bigger, it meant hiring a lot of staff. It meant uh, taking on a lot of in-house responsibilities. And when I say Afghanistan is about getting back to our roots, we had determined about a year ago that we really wanted to lean back into some former language that we were using and a former reality that we were living, which is to be a community of peacemakers. Um, what that what that means is that every every member of the community uh, has has a kind of standing as a stakeholder in the community itself. You may not be on staff, but you're still a member of the community. And we had members in our community who are Afghan. We had Afghan network. We had foreigners living in Afghanistan that we could draw on. We had Afghans in the United States that we could talk to who were donors and members of our community. And when Kabul fell to the Taliban on uh, August 15th, we had already been in weeks of weeks of very active conversations leading up to that because the, the Taliban was kind of working their way across the country. So we had already been in conversations, but when August 15th came around and Kabul fully fell, the, the cries for help were getting a lot more serious and intense and pointed. Like, we need preemptive love to jump in and get involved in this. Can you call on, can we call on the community to do something? And because we were in more of a communal mindset, getting back to our roots, thinking about the network that we had, and because we weren't so tied to thinking about, well, we don't have staff in country, we don't have infrastructure of our own already in the country like we do in other places, we were able to start mobilizing some thoughts and some resource recruitment and then some resource deployment faster than we would have if we were still in that that growth modality that said, well, we have to have an office, we have to have staff, we have to have all these logistics lined up. No, we had a community. We had a network that we could tap into that was actually asking us for support. And that's how we that's how we got to where we are anyway, was leaning on Iraqi friends, leaning on Syrian friends, leaning on Lebanese friends, leaning on that network and sending resources out across the community and across the network to help build up others to do what they are best positioned to do. And so um, that's that's the modality that we've largely been in so far inside Afghanistan. We've also done some stuff outside of Afghanistan so far that I'm not quite in a position to talk about yet, but, but inside Afghanistan, it's mostly been about deploying resources across the community to help other members of our Afghan peacemaking community do what they need to do on the ground to keep people fed and safe and secure in this, this kind of liminal space that we're in right now. Well, you moved very, very quickly and fast. And of course, the, the time component of it, I'm guessing, saved a lot more uh, lives and also made it more impactful for everyone. So thank you so much, Jeremy, for doing what you're doing. And thank you so much to, to your organization and everyone that's living in the same community that preemptive love is developing and fostering. Um, how, what can we do to help you? I mean, you've, you've told us an amazing story. This is very inspiring. What can we do? What can our audience do 
what are what are some of the things that you would kind of what what do you need from us what how can we help no that's really generous of you to ask and to ask like that in particular we really have one request one call to action that we that we ever want to give and that is become a member of our peacemaking community that's what we need and when i say become a member i mean if you have a credit card yes what we mean is use your credit card but but beyond that what we mean is really sign up not just for the monthly membership to to join us and help us wage peace all over the world but but really sign up as fully as you know how to sign up right now today as an actual peacemaker meaning someone who who wants to start keeping an eye out in your own neighborhood who wants to start keeping an eye out in your own city for opportunities to to move toward just just one step just one step at a time move toward the things that make you uncomfortable move toward the things that scare you move toward that group that kind of alienates you or annoys you that's the work of peacemaking sometimes people say oh i could never be a peacemaker or some sometimes people even say i don't like that you call us peacemakers I'm not a peacemaker. I don't do that fabulous work over there in those war-torn countries. We want to change the very notion of how a lot of us think about how peace is actually forged and how it's held together. The peace in your neighborhood, wherever you're listening to this, is very likely hanging by a thread right now. The peace in your town or your city or your state or your country is probably as frayed or fractured as it's been in a long time. It's it's us. It's all of us who hold the peace together. It's not the blue helmets that come in or some flag waving humanitarian who comes in and says, now the peacemakers are here. It's on us. Mm -hmm. If we don't hold it together, there's no foreign organization or foreign government who can ever step in and fix it for us. We are the peacemakers or we're not. And the work of preemptive love is to try and grow this community of peacemakers as as best we can all over the world where where we help you wage peace wherever you are and you help the rest of the peacemakers here wage peace wherever they are. And that's how we responded so quickly in Afghanistan. It's because we have peacemakers all over the world who had already been giving monthly and they made it possible for us to pledge that first investment in Afghanistan before we ever went public with it because our community of peacemakers was already at the ready. So uh, if you're interested in helping wage peace, both where you are and around the world, that's that's the simple call to action. Join us, become a member of our community of peacemakers here at Preemptive Love today. And you can do that at preemptivelove.org. And of course, the holidays are coming and they have some beautiful products on their website as well. So, um, you know, get those uh, while you can, too, because there's going to be a shortage, I'm sure, after not only this episode, but just with the holidays coming, it's going to be harder to get the things you want. And so why not gifts, get gifts that are meaningful? So uh, go to preemptivelove.org. And thank you so much, Jeremy. This has been an incredible conversation. I'm so excited that we were able to have you here and talk about anytime we can talk about peacemaking, I think is a good day. So. So um, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Enrique, for your leadership in this company and um, for Jeremy, the work that you're doing. And thank you so much for listening to us at home. And if you liked this conversation and want to hear more in the future, then please hit subscribe. Thanks so much. Thank you, Jeremy. Have a great day. Thank you both. Appreciate it.